For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. This is going to be a fun one. Uh, hot topic issue, uh, but we're going to go way up north to talk about it. Our friend Benjamin Ayayan. Now, see, now I practice it and then I blew it anyway. You say it. You say hey, your name, you, my friend. You did your best. It's close, though. It's Ayanian. Ayanian. That's A and a Y. And it, look, you can't be throwing them vowels and consonants together on a hillbilly. That's just not fair. <laughs> Benjamin Ayanian uh, joining us. Uh, he's up in Minnesota, uh, originally by way of Virginia. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on today. Anytime. Another one of these great young voices contributors whose names I butcher, but their content and takes are very good and you should hear them out. Uh, Let's talk about this Disney thing real quick. Uh, We know about the parental right bill. Let's start with that um, because I think a lot of people skipped over that portion of it. We did it at ordinary-times.com. We posted the actual bill. It's The PDF's only seven pages. It's actually really only about five pages of actual text. Let's start there so everybody's on the same song sheet here. What's actually in the bill? What's actually not in the bill? What does it do? What does it not do? The bill is, a lot of it is about disclosure um, in regards to specific information relating to, to children's mental and physical health. It really allows parents to be informed about what their kids are doing in school. But the specific, the specific part of the bill that that has garnered all the media attention really relates to this one section about prohibiting institutional teaching about sexual orientation and gender identity um, before third grade. Right, kindergartners through third graders cannot be taught about sexual orientation and gender identity. And that has earned the bill, um, a, the colloquial name of the don't say gay bill. And interestingly enough, if you go to the PDF on the website and command F, or if you have a Mac, hit command F and search the word gay. The word gay actually does not pop up a single time in this bill. And the exact language just strictly speaking prohibits institutional discussions of these topics K through third grade. And so it does not stop a teacher from talking about their partner or a student from talking about 
their homosexual parents that they have them. These these discussions can can be had. There's just not allowed to be any institutional lecturing about these topics K through third grade. Now, there was some pushback, and I think it's a fair point to raise about the specific language of what is and isn't institutional lecturing and the way this bill was phrased. Uh, the enforcement mechanism, for lack of a better term of it, was that the State Board of Education would oversee this. Well, that all sounds okay on paper, but that is a little bit nebulous because, you know, there's no guidelines there. It says, well, the state board will deal with it. Well, that don't have a whole lot of guardrails to it. Uh, What about that pushback and that criticism? Is that fair or is that something that you think they're going to have to come back and revisit at some point? Because I'm assuming this is probably going to wind up in court one way or the other. Um, That's probably one of those areas that they're going to have to revisit with this legislation one way or the other, isn't it? I think there, there can be concern about the discretion involved there for overseeing what exactly constitutes institutionalized um, lecturing. And I think that that probably needs to be parsed out a little bit more. There, there will be more specifics that need to be hashed out. And like you said, it will go to court. I'm really interested to see what type of arguments are brought um, in regard to, to that piece of the legisla- legislation. But I don't think that we're going to see a ton of issues with this because at the end of the day, there's already not institutional lecturing about sexual orientation, gender identity, K through third grade. There's actually a a small article in um, a local Tampa Bay outlet questioning, you know, what does the bill actually do in a lot of ways regarding this specific topic? Because like I just said, those topics are already not lectured about in these grades. And so as long as they're not bringing in third party speakers, as long as teachers aren't separating certain slots of class time to dedicate to teaching about different things like sexual orientation, gender identity, queer theory, all of these different things there, I don't foresee a huge issue um, arising from the language that's in the bill. Now, the other part of this that got a lot of furor was the teacher-student relationship. I don't think it's refined to just this issue. I think a lot of the other things we've been discussing, like the COVID stuff, like the CRT stuff, I think this is another example of how there should be a partnership between the teacher, the student, and the parents. And that partnership is just broken on a lot of levels, not just on these hot button issues. I think some of this is coming from that because part of the premise, if you're for both sides, really, that are having a hard time with this bill is these are things that just need to be discussed out between the parents and the students and the teachers and the administrators and for the, on behalf of the students. And we're going straight to legislation and litigation instead of leaving having these conversations. Does this feel like part? I don't think we can separate this from the CRT debate, from the COVID debate from all the other stuff that's been happening in education over the last couple of years, because these things all build. I think this was just one of them pressure things where when this came off, a lot of those other issues got kind of folded into it. And that's why you kind of got the details of the actual what's going to happen in the classroom part of the bill got skipped over. Does it feel that way to you? I I think that there's a lot of discussion that needs to be had between educators, parents and students, like you just pointed out. One issue is that at least what I'm hearing here in Minnesota, we've had certain you know teacher strikes in Minnesota. Um, there's a lot of people protesting against parents' involvement in schooling. You know, they teachers feel a lot of times some teachers, and I want to lump them all into one category, feel that they're what they teach in school classrooms should not be subject 
to the whims of parents. And that has been a big discussion throughout the country lately. And there needs to be more dialogue between parents, students, and teachers. And we are jumping, I would agree, pretty quickly to legislation, um, to litigation. This bill isn't, um, personally, from a, a personal political philosophy standpoint, this bill would not be the route that I, I would like to see states start going. I would not love to see the outlawing of certain topics um, in schools. You know, I, with more of a classical liberal libertarian bend that I have, I would prefer to see you know a school choice system where people can take their tax dollars in the form of vouchers to different schools and the local school boards can have more discretion about what they teach in their classrooms and then if a parent as long as they have disclosure about what their child's being taught if uh if they don't like it they can take their kid to another school for example um and so it is a little worrisome to see all of these issues like you said the crt issue the COVID issue and now the the don't say gay bill issue or the parental rights issue um really come full steam ahead to to a legislation and litigation standpoint um i would like to see more more dialogue between the parties involved like you just pointed out yeah talking to benjamin ayayinan <laughs> Still can't get that other end in there. Dang God, I'm gonna keep working on, buddy. We got more to talk about yet. Um, to kind of get get this rounded back around, though, there's one term in here that's going to be legally problematic. It's a term that educators have been fighting with since there's been educators and students. Age appropriate. Um, how do we define that? How do we work on that? Like, we we can agree that there's certain things that you don't teach at a certain age, but we don't seem to be able to agree on what those ages are. Is it kindergarten to third grade like these do? What do you do? Um, I'll quote the middle school principal that of my youngest children's middle school. I thought he was brilliant when he did his intro every year. He would say, listen, they're coming in here as little kids and they're leaving as basically young adults in middle school because that's, you know, you can just sit there the difference between a sixth grader, a fifth grader and an eighth grader. Like it's just night and day, the developmental differences. How do we start dealing with this? Because again, if we're going to go to litigation and legislation right off the bat, you're going to lose the nuance of childhood development. This is touchy, even without all the hot button issues. This is hard stuff to parse out. How are we going to get to a place where about age appropriate when we can't even talk to each other about some basic stuff like what we are and are not going to teach in a classroom? You, you raise a great point. Age appropriate does not have an agreed upon definition. The bill only talks about K through third graders not being taught about sexual identity and or gender identity and sexual orientation. But like you said, for older children, it just says you can be taught age appropriate material. And that I think will be a large a large topic of debate moving forward with certain legislation, because that's going to have to be interpreted by someone by school boards, by courts, by parents, you know, they're the ones that are going to be able to bring lawsuits against schools for certain actions that they take. And I think it'll be really interesting to see if a legal definition comes out of litigation moving forward. But it is really hard to to think that we can make bills about teaching our children age appropriate things if we can't agree on the definition of that term. And so I'm not exactly sure what what will then be taught or acceptable to be taught uh, moving forward for older kids. But that's definitely something that will have to be clarified. Yeah. And that's another reason we need to be real careful about uh, knee jerking out legislation quick because it goes to black and white and they need to parse these things out carefully. Talking to our friend Benjamin Ianian. 
I'm getting that closer. That might be your third, your third pronunciation in the three times. I, we'll keep at it until we get it right. We're going to take a quick break. Be right back with our friend Ben uh, after the break. Uh, there's always a good guy and a bad guy in these stories once social media gets a hold of them. Uh, this one roped in the House of Mouse. Disney, the big entertainment name on the block, is now involved in this. The state of Florida and them are beefing, and social media's got all kinds of thoughts about it. We're going to talk about that. He's been writing about that in spectator.org. More with our friend Ben Ianian right after this. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. We have been practicing my pronunciation of Ben Ianian during the break so that I can properly use his name. I apologize. We're doing our best with it, my friend. Okay. Uh, the reason this had the initial burst of the don't say gay bill and that sort of stuff, it has taken on a second life on social media, especially because now we've got Disney involved. Uh, before we get into the, the specifics of that, how in the world did the House of Mouse get involved on a school bill in Florida? So originally, Disney's CEO, Bob Chapek, I hope I'm pronouncing his last name right, um, did not do a whole lot to speak out against this bill. Disney did not take a formal, strong stance against the bill. And for weeks, the, the employees of the company were expressing dissent. Um, there was discontent growing within the company. And Disney has a lot of employees in Florida. And traditionally, it's been a huge ally to the LGBTQ community. And so employees were really upset that the company was not taking a stronger, more public stance against the bill. And what followed from that is walkout protests from their employees. A number of employees actually walked off the job and also denounced certain donations that Disney makes to certain employees. And Disney then finally took a strong public vocal stance, releasing statements and talking to the media about how they wish to get this bill repealed at the end of the day. Now, let's uh, have a little bit of an adult conversation about Disney here because people are people have strong feelings about Disney because it's such a classic brand. It's it's the entertainment brand now in a lot of ways. The Disney Plus streaming, they got Star Wars, they got Marvel. We know it's a Leviathan. Their support of the uh, LGBT community, this is not new, uh, especially their employees in Florida. It has been well known for decades and decades. I remember 20 years ago, a friend of mine I grew up went went down to Florida and worked at Disney for that exact reason, because it was a welcoming community in no small part. Um, th this stuff is all well known. It's pretty disingenuous for people to act like, oh, my gosh, Disney supports this stuff because they're not exactly subtle about it. But then you've taken to writing about this at the same time of we're probably doing everybody a disservice and all sides of debate a disservice by trying to slam corporate overlords 
as some kind of measuring stick on whether these issues are good or not. When you sat down to write about this and Disney's involved, did you just kind of roll your eyes a little bit and blow like, man, do, do people not know what Disney is? Or did you parse it out of like, well, Disney's the biggest one in the block. So of course that's going to be the one we're going to deal with. How did it land with you? Yeah. Disney obviously was the company that I focused on in my article. I did mention other companies that signed a petition denouncing LGBTQ, anti-LGBTQ legislation um, in reaction to the don't say gay bill, the parental rights bill in Florida. And I focused on Disney because they were the loudest voice, um, as you stated. And I did roll my eyes a little bit, not because they were being an ally to a specific community, but because it's it's interesting to see people look to corporations and their CEOs as arbiters of truth, as arbiters of morality. And be, well, because, like I pointed out in my article, that they have a they have one incentive, and that's to make profit. And at the end of the day, what they speak out on and what they choose not to speak out on comes down to their bottom line. I pointed out that companies you know, denouncing this bill, companies that are supporting Ukraine in their conflict against Russia. They rarely say anything about what goes on in China under the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and so actually, I remember um, Daryl Morey, the, the NBA GM, um, the Houston Rockets, tweeted out support for Hong Kong in their protests against the Chinese Communist Party and LeBron James, the best player in the world at the time, and the NBA all release statements condemning his words. And at the same time, the NBA will write Black Lives Matter on the court. They will have players wear social justice slogans on the back of their jerseys. They did all this um, back in the COVID years. And so it, it's really interesting to see people look to corporations and their CEOs as figures of morality when their principles are so inconsistent, when their bottom line dictates what what issues they take up. And they have the right to do that as long as they're not violating their fiduciary duties to their, their shareholders. But at the end of the day, it just muddies conversation. It, it elevates certain opinions over others incredibly arbitrarily and makes po political civil discourse among ordinary citizens that much harder. Yeah. And I'm old enough to remember the last time we did this with Disney back in 97, we're going to boycott Disney. Uh, and it's a lot of the same stuff back then. It was over uh, Ella DeGeneres was coming out on ABC. That made people mad. It was a lot of gay issues. They had a, they were having um, uh, gay pride days at the parks, which upset some certain folks. And I think it was mostly led by the Southern Baptist Convention at the time. Back in 1997, we're going to boycott Disney. Well, here we are in 2022. You can see how well that worked out for them. Um, what is it about folks going to boycotts? Look, I, I don't like boycotts. If I don't like a company and what they're doing, I just don't get their product. I don't make a big pose about it on social media. What is it about this boycott mindset, especially on a hot button social issue or a cultural issue like this? And then when you get a big name like Disney, which is probably the biggest entertainment name you can think of. Why is that just like the 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 blue light for the bugs? They just got to fly to that zapper every single time. What do you think that is? I think I think people realize the role that their money plays, and that in effect, in a free market economy, we vote with our dollars. And if we don't like what a CEO or a corporation says, we can always stop buying their products. One problem is when we make it a such a large collective issue. 
then try and rope everyone else into, into our specific battle, for example. Um, one issue with that is it really divides the public. Now, there might be a red line. You know, there might, there has to be a red line at some point, something egregious. For example, if a company comes out in support of, of something egregious like Nazism, that might be a red line that everyone can get behind and say, okay, it's time to stop supporting this company. But more nuanced and contentious public issues that have grievances, legitimate grievances or legitimate misunderstandings on both sides of an issue, it is relatively dangerous to see people jump to boycotts so often because it, then we we go we risk going down the road of, OK, conservatives are going to shop here and liberals are going to shop here or progressives will shop here and libertarians will shop here. And all it does is further the growing divide that we've seen over the years, I think one thing that leads people to jump to boycott so quickly is our ability to reach each other so easily. Now, it's not hard to to organize a boycott at this point on social media to a certain extent to get people on your side. Start a hashtag, get it trending on Twitter. All of a sudden, hundreds of thousands, millions of people are seeing this tweet, and it's a lot easy to band together to try and to try and make change. So if someone has a really strong opinion on a specific topic and they want to see change fast, it isn't irrational for them to try and start a boycott and to to, to go to social media to grow support quickly. Um, but it, it does it does lead to the possibility where our political views don't only separate us at the at the voting box. Now it's going to separate where we shop, where we like, where we live all the time, who we interact with, and I don't think that that is a an outcome anybody wants to see. It's part of it too. Um, talking to Benjamin Ianian, I think the part with Disney that gets overlooked. We were talking about this with our friend Stephen Ken a couple of days ago. People with Disney, because it's in your home, because it's those stories that are kind of you know, it's our modern mythology in a lot of ways. Uh, the Disney stories. They feel like they have ownership of that, even though they don't. And then when it becomes something where it becomes the hot button issues, people do make it more personal that way. And then it's what you're talking about in your article where you say the truth becomes an afterthought and everything starts getting arbitrarily elevated. People internalize and they personalize it a lot faster when something like Disney's involved, because now it's like, oh, this isn't just the political trend. This is my childhood memory you're fooling with. And then that sort of thing. I I think that's a dangerous thing to go to because then your bearing starts getting lost, your principles start getting lost. And more importantly to the point is it becomes you've now been personally aggrieved and you start losing your ability to see the other people as people and not just something that's done damage to you. And I think that might be where some of the damage on some of this stuff goes. Is that too far to think of it that way? Because like you said, social media, this stuff's all amplified. We're all, you know, you, you know, who's on your side and who isn't instantly now Facebook's even worse. That's why I don't have it. Um, you know, we're, 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 we want to pick teams instantly on every issue the moment they happen. Is that not a lot of what's going on here? And we just don't really have a good way of handling it. I think that information moves so quickly that we feel impulses to pick a side right away. I think that that's true. You log on to social media and everyone on your feed is picking a side on a hot button issue. If you haven't picked one, you feel left out. You feel like you're behind and you might even feel 
morally beneath other people because they're all becoming moral issues. Every issue now is a question of your morality these days. And I think that that does stem with specifically with Disney. It does stem to a degree with the emotions involved from watching your childhood station, um, having to take a side on these issues and, and really feeling like feeling your identity be so involved in an issue that maybe we don't have all the information on right away. I mean, we, the beginning of our conversation today was about certain things that are going to have to be clarified moving forward. Those are all parts of the, the new law that we don't know a ton of specifics about yet. Um, and even the, the pieces that we do know, there is large misunderstanding of them and people's emotions get built up and they go, they see everybody commenting on it. They hear the term don't say gay being repeated on and on and on. And it just builds, it builds your identity with the issue. It builds your emotions involved in it to where you feel like you have to pick a side and Disney is either not doing enough or they're doing too much. And those are really the only two stances. I actually did not write about this issue on purpose for weeks until more had developed. I actually submitted my article um, to my editors late in the news cycle. They told me I'd have to get this done really quickly so that we don't miss the boat on it um, because I decided to wait weeks before I had more information to hear arguments play out on both sides to see what different outlets would do with it. But with how quickly we can consume and put out information, that's it's not intuitive anymore. Um, I had to make a conscious effort to do that. As soon as it came out, I wanted to start writing on it, but I had to tell myself, you got to gather more information. But yeah, with, with social media and, and everything at our fingertips, it's really, it's really hard to do that. Yeah, but I commend you for doing that because that's the right way to do it. I've got the same problem with me, whether it's at Ordinary Times or doing this show right here um, on Hertel. I've told people like, hey, here's this little two-minute blurb on this issue, but we're not going to really talk about it until we can get somebody on later or we'll get somebody that knows or, hey, this don't feel right. Let's let this breathe. You don't lose social media points for letting something breathe a day or two, and you usually end up paying off, especially something like legislation where until that final bill gets signed, it's probably going to change on you. Um, let's go there to finish this conversation out, round it back up where we started. You started your piece by talking about what was actually in the bill. Um, talk about a minute why you do that, because these things are all public record. Uh, they're PDFs. You can you can read the bills. You can read them. States like Florida, Florida's actually got a really good system. You can read them every time they go through a committee and all the change. They actually have the markups right on them. Um, talk about the process that folks can follow to turn down the noise. They can do what you do. They can read these bills for themselves. Just tell people how they can actually do that, get to the PDFs and inform themselves so that they don't get caught up in those cycles we were talking about where people are just talking over each other and past each other. Well, one great way to find the bills is to go to your website, actually, because you post the PDFs of them. Free constantly. plug. I love it. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you. Yeah, anytime. Um, but it's really easy to find these bills, especially in a state like Florida. If you read an article about a bill, normally they'll just have the name of the bill 
if you Google that name, you can find the actual law code. It'll pop up on Google. If you read certain outlets like the Wall Street Journal, the Wall Street Journal almost always has a link to actual bill PDFs or writes out the letters and numbers associated with specific bills before they're passed. It's really it really takes you know an extra five minutes at most of effort to find the actual PDFs. One reason you're at the beginning of your question was why don't people tend tend to do this? I think it's because especially federal legislation, they're a gazillion pages long. The number of pages, the number of bills even, but really the number of pages in all of our laws has grown exponentially over the decades. Nobody wants to sit and read a thousand pages worth of a bill that is subject to change. And then no one wants to read a thousand pages of a law that is going to take them, you know, weeks on end to read. People have lives to lead. People have jobs to work. But a bill like this, if you just look it up, like you said, it's only seven pages long. It's about five of actual text. And so I think that it's really important that that we decide to look at the the bills that are the subject of such hot button issues. If it's something that has everybody riled up, for example, the don't say gay bill, everyone is tweeting out gay, 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 like I will say gay, maybe go to the bill and just hit command F and search the word gay to see if it has anything about prohibiting people from using that term. If there's a certain part of you know, a federal budget bill that seems to have everybody up in arms. You can command F keywords and you'll find that part of the budget within, you know, the gazillion pages of the the entire budget. And so it's not easy, but we do live in a democracy. And I do think that we owe it to ourselves and each other to be informed to a certain degree on topics that we're going to opine about. If we want to debate on social media, if we want to debate with our friends or our professors or whoever is in our lives, um, it wouldn't hurt, especially if it's about legislation, to decide to read the actual bill instead of reading what other people have to say about the bill. One quick example I want to give is the, the Georgia voting rights bill back you know, a couple of years ago, the Georgia voting laws that were changed. Um, CEOs like the CEO of Delta, the the CEO of Coca-Cola all came out and spoke out against the voting bills in Georgia as, you know, voter, they, they called them voter suppression bills. And we heard it in the media over and over. But if you read parts of these bills, you would see things like no excuse absentee voting was allowed for everybody. You know, two Saturdays of early voting were made part of the voting process. Ballot drop boxes were made permanent parts of the voting process. And so specifics of bills are really important and they get lost in public conversation a lot. Yeah, outstanding stuff. I really enjoyed this conversation. Benjamin Ianian, uh, our friend, we're going to have you back on, uh, but till they see you again on our program, let folks know where they can follow you, your writing, your social media, what you have going on until we get you back on our tell again. You can follow me on Twitter at Benjamin Ianian. You can also follow me on Instagram. If you just search my name, Benjamin Ianian, it'll pop up. I have a public account. That's probably the best way to keep up with my writing because I don't write for a specific outlet. I just pitch where I can get in. Yep. Well, you're always welcome to write with us anytime you want to. We will definitely have you back. Uh, Great conversation. Check out his pieces in uh, spectator.org and elsewhere. We'll put links in the show notes to those. Ben, good job, buddy. Appreciate the conversation. We'll see you again soon. Thanks for having me on. Yes, sir. 
Stimmt. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.